the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Adrian Guest, along with my co-host, Devin Dito. We're back at it. Weekly roundup number 16, October the 2nd. Uh, plenty of news to get into, Devin, so let's go ahead and get there. First off, listeners, we're going to take you to California, my former uh, home state, where uh, Governor Gavin Newsom signed a bill into law Thursday that returns beachfront property known as Bruce's Beach to descendants of a black couple who had the land taken away from them after they were forced out of the Manhattan Beach nearly 100 years ago. By signing Senate Bill 796, the state confirms that the taking of this land where the Brewsters ran a successful resort for black beachgoers was racially motivated and done unlawfully. Activists and lawmakers in California hope that this return of land will help advance efforts on reparations for black folks and other people who were allowed to who were allowed to build generational wealth. Um, Devin, really, really good uh, news segment there to kind of start us off. Uh, anytime you can have some sort of form of reparations, I'm all in favor of that. Yeah, I mean, we all are. I mean, that's that's what we want to see. We want to see more of this um, happening around the country. And I'm glad to see, you know, that it's in writing. It's law. Gavin Newsom, the governor, signed it into law. So there is no going. I would say at least right now there's no going back. But <laughs> um, but no, it's, it's that's exactly what we want to see. I mean, hopefully we see more of that in the future. So, uh, But our next story here, we're going to kind of go from California, go up to Capitol Hill, and we're going to be talking about Representative Cori Bush. And so she gave a very emotional testimony um, about being sexually assaulted as a teenager and getting an abortion. And this was during a congressional hearing on abortion rights on Thursday. So, of course, after the passing of the Texas law uh, that bans most abortions in the state, uh, there's a lot of concern about what this means going forward as far as abortion rights. And so Representative Cori Bush uh, did give some testimony on Capitol Hill. And just to kind of let you know what she actually said, she spoke about her experience in an interview with Vanity Fair. Uh, she's a, a, a Missouri Democrat, and she recounted being assaulted at the age of 17 during an annual trip, uh, church trip to Jackson, Mississippi. And so she said that's when she met a 20-year-old man who was a friend of a friend, uh, the two of them hit it off so well that when he asked her to visit her his her room, she agreed, uh, naively believing, believing that uh, they would simply kind of just chill and talk. And a few months after this, you know, trip, after, once they met, things ensued and, and uh, there was an assault. And a few months after the trip, she actually found out that she was nine weeks pregnant and she had turned 18 before she had the abortion, and this is what she told Vanity, Vanity Fair, quote, I was 18, I was broke, and I felt so alone. I blamed myself for what had happened to me. And so she said she was unsuccessful in her attempts to contact the man who had raped her. And when she had a mutual friend inform him about the pregnancy, she said he actually laughed. And so she said, quote, so then I realized, okay, I'm on my own with this thing. She told the magazine and she noted that that's when she actually decided to have an abortion. And so, Adrian, uh, you know, heavy testimony there. And it just goes to kind of illustrate that this discussion, arguments, whatever you want to call it, surrounding abortion, this debate, controversy, um, there's there are things that we're not taking into account, you know, that as to why someone would even go get an abortion in the first place. It's not something people wake up and want to do. And, and you'll hear it in our conversation with Dr. Hunter. It is a very complex issue. And so 
Um, but just, you know, her story there just kind of illustrates that it is not black and white, you know, simply saying that people just want to kill babies is not an accurate depiction of what's really going on. Absolutely. Because um, whenever you get an abortion, at least the with the clinic that I know of when I was ha- and I had a friend who worked at an abortion clinic, there's a lot of counseling that goes into it before someone just gets an abortion. It's not like you're just, you know, it's not like you're just going to get ice cream or whatever. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a lot, it's a lot into it. Don't do. Yeah. yeah, it is. So I think that people who are a little insensitive as to why women choose to go through that, um, you just, you just got to put your, you got to have some empathy. And we talk, like Devin said, we talk about that in our episode because I think that that's what's important here. Because obviously, you know, uh, Representative Bush uh, probably wanted to, you know, have the child, but because of the incident, because of what happened and, and all of the trauma around that, there are a lot of reasons why women choose to have abortion. So really, really, um, really glad that she chose to tell her story on Capitol Hill. I know that took a, a lot of courage, you know, to, to go in front of lawmakers and do something like that. To go to another story here, uh, this is an R&B singer, R. R. Kelly. I know he's been in the news, a lot of, a lot of stuff surrounding him, but he's been found guilty on racketeering and sex trafficking related to violations of the Mann Act. The jury found Kelly guilty of several acts, including inciting and coercing a minor and inciting a minor to engage in sexual activity and making visual recordings of it. The jury also found him guilty of using threatening force to obtain sexual services for minors. Kelly's sentencing is set for May 4th, 2022. His defense team said they are disappointed by the results and plan to appeal. You know, Devin, it's been a lot in the making. I feel like it's, you know... You know, what can you say? You know, there's, you know, visual recordings and things like that. And it just just seems like it's a downhill battle for Mr. R. Kelly. Yeah. You know, that's and this this is going to hurt the community because the community is very much attached to R. Kelly and people still listen to his music, despite the fact of everything that he's done. But he's just getting what was coming to him. Finally, you know, the victims are finally getting some justice. This is what we wanted to see. We knew R. Kelly was doing these things way back when he was, you know, in a relationship with Aaliyah, who was underage. Um, this has been coming, like you say, for a long time. And it's good to see that he's finally being held accountable uh, for essentially being a predator and being allowed to use his status to make, uh, you know, young girls do things that they wouldn't have done otherwise. And so, He's just getting what he, you know, deserves. <laughs> uh, but we'll, we'll move on from here. Of course, we'll update you and let you know what his actual sentence is. That's not going to come to next year. But he did at least get found guilty of uh, racketeering and sex trafficking. So he, he's getting what he had coming. Um, so our next story here, we're going to move on to uh, the CDC. And so what they're doing, so they're actually going to be doing a study here to uh, look at the true toll of guns in America. And so for decades, uh, the devastating impact of non-fatal firearm injuries in the U.S. has been understudied, undercovered by the media, and often overlooked. And so political pressure from the gun lobby, Republicans, regulations, and, quote, disordered and highly segmented collection systems have created chronically unreliable data and information that obscure our true understanding of the public health, financial, psychological, and social toll of gun injuries. And so 
Uh, we know from the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC and prevention data, that just over 100 people on average are killed by firearms in the U.S. every day. And this includes not just this includes crimes, suicides, gun accidents and shootings involving law enforcement. But the question is, how often is someone injured by a firearm in America? Why, how and what kind of weapons are used? What are the underlying causes? What's the relationship between the shooter and victim? What evidence-based scalable programs work best to help prevent these type of incidents involving guns? And then on these and other questions, people in the public health, criminal justice, policing, and academia admit they lack full and adequate answers. And the CDC under Dr. Rochelle Walensky says that will now finally, finally start to change. So I remember, Adrian, I think this may have come up last year that the CDC was going to treat, you know, gun violence as like a public health issue almost. And so I'm finally glad to see that they're going to start to study it because, you know, we know how prevalent guns are in our society and we haven't really studied what that is actually doing to us psychologically, physically, you know, so it's, it's good to see they're actually starting to turn an eye towards it and put some real, uh, you know, research dollars behind it. I agree completely, Devin. You know, there's been a lot of money, you know, with with advocates and legislation to get people to have more guns. And we've got this, you know, the Second Amendment right to bear arms. And it's, you know, government can't take away our guns. You you can have, you know, thousands of guns in your home and you got states where you can just walk around with, you know, handguns at your hip like we're in the Wild West. I mean, it's. Here in America, there's such, you know, an attachment to guns for security. And I'm just like, you know, if you feel that you have to have that many guns to be secure, then we're obviously doing something wrong in your community. (laughs) Uh, I I get the fact that you feel that you have a right to bear arms and things like that. But I feel like here in America, we take it to a higher level, not to mention, you know, we have you know, you know, a mass shooting problem. That's, that's an American problem. You don't, uh, they, they do have that happening in other countries, but it's not to the degree that we have it, uh, not to the degree of violence that we have it here in America. So it's, it's awesome that the CDC is trying to take a stance. Um, hopefully we'll get some, some good things out of this. We know based off of our interviews, listeners, that more legislation isn't necessarily the answer. So hopefully this education through this could maybe prompt something else like these programs that they were talking about. So we'll make sure to keep in the loop on that. Another cool thing that we were uh, looking into, I guess cool, but I guess a cool concept if it happened, but to give you a little context to it, a recent news item pointed to the need for the United Front of Black folks throughout the world. While Africans or Africa has had some of the fastest growing economies in the world, Often they're regarded as charity cases or rich continent of vast raw materials to exploit like the old days of colonialism and slavery. White wealthy nations are actually hoarding COVID vaccines. I didn't actually know this. Uh, they're basically creating a vaccine or apartheid where wealthy white nations control over 82% of the world supply of the life-saving vaccines and low-incoming nations have secured less than 1%. In fact, fewer than 4% of Africans have actually been few, uh, fully immunized and they cannot purchase the vaccine. Meanwhile, the linkages between slavery and immigration policy were in full view 
whenever the nation witnessed the harsh treatment of the Haitian migrants in Texas as Border Patrol on horseback, like overseers, overseers in slavery time, whipped those that were just desperate to kind of, you know, get to some safety. And they were already traumatized people. So the the author of this article is basically posing this idea. What if the black diaspora united not only as a reaction to all of the trauma, but in the name of power, basically saying, consider what would happen if we unleashed this black diaspora, which included all African nations, Caribbean, black population in America, Brazil and beyond, and created some sort of version of a European Union or African Union, for that matter, um, to kind of help with all of this. And honestly, it's a cool idea, Devin. I, I, I definitely, you know, it makes me think about the campaigns that you see where, you know, we as black Americans have the opportunity to invest money back in Africa to get, you know, to help with these growing economies and things. Um, I think it's great because, you know, we already point to the fact that here in America, you know, we only make up about, what, 12 percent of the population. So it's hard to really fight. If it's a numbers game, it's hard to fight for change. But if you do, you know, uh, have a coalition amongst numbers, then that could be something powerful. It, it could. It could. You know, the one thing that first came to mind was just geography is is going to work against you. You know, we're not we're kind of spread out. So when you say hey, we're in the global we, world, we got Zoom we, and everything. <laughs> we are. But a European Union, you know, they're all landlocked. They're all bordering each other. It's a little it's a lot easier to do something like that. Uh, whereas with us, you know, we're here in America, we could try to band with our brothers, you know, on the African continent, but, um, no, I think it's a great idea. And I think we should at least be more vocal when things like what happened at the border to the Haitian, uh, you know, immigrants happens, we can be more, more, you know, unified in our criticism of things like that. You know, we can talk about the vaccine hoarding that's going on in, in, African-Americans here in, in our country can be more vocal and saying, hey, we need to make sure that we bring Af- the African continent along with the rest of the developed world and trying to get them uh, vaccinated and protected uh, or more protected against, you know, COVID-19. So, no, I think it's a it's a, a, a great concept. And, you know, obviously there are geographical cha- challenges with that, but I think it's something we could try to work for forward to where at the very least, we could at least educate ourselves as far as what is going on on the other side of the world, what's going on in Africa, and vice versa. So where we at least care enough to, to you know, keep up with what's going on. And when we see something like what happened to, you know, our Haitian brothers and sisters, then we can be vocal in our stance. I mean, we, yeah, we make up 12% of the population here, but we do have some power um, to at least put things on a national stage and tell people, Hey, you need to be paying attention to this. Uh, so no, I, I love the concept. And so, but yeah, so before we go, we have one more little story here, uh, just to kind of feel good to wrap out, round out the segment, but, uh, entertainment entertainer, Nick Cannon is out here doing the government's work as some say by clearing tens of thousands of dollars in student loan debt for seven college students attending historically black, black colleges and universities. So when they graduate, and this is when they graduate. So Cannon is actually a 2020 graduate of Howard University. And he said he's so proud to be part of such an incredible legacy, adding that these colleges and universities played a pivotal role in developing some of the brightest minds and influencers of our time. So 
glad to see Nick Cannon trying to give back. And yes, he is doing the government's work by clearing tens of thousands of dollars in student loan debt. Hopefully Joe Biden is paying attention. <laughs> so we get some action on that. Um, so that's going to do it for our first segment of news. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we got some some uh, international news for you about coming out of Germany. We got a COVID-19 pill that has is looking to get approved by the FDA. So that's going to be interesting. We're going to talk about all that on the other side of the break. So make sure you stick around with us and we'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the Black Agenda podcast. We appreciate your support and we ask that you like, share and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, IG and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So like I said before the break, we have some some international news. So first up here is there's a former secretary for the SS commander of the Stutthof concentration camp. I hope I said that right. But the uh, they were a SS commander of the Stutthof concentration camp, actually skipped the planned start uh, of Thursday of her trial in Germany on more than 11,000. Yes, you heard that right. 11,000 counts of accessory to murder. This is a 96-year-old woman who uh, was a former worker, or she was a former officer at a Nazi camp during uh, World War II, it looks like. And so the court said in a statement before the trial that the defendant allegedly aided and abetted those in charge of the camp and the systematic killing of those imprisoned there between June 1943 and April 1945 in her function as a stenographer and typist in the camp's commandant's office. And so... Like I say, the 96-year-old woman left her home uh, near Hamburg, Germany, in a taxi on Thursday morning, a few hours before proceedings were due to start at the state court in uh, Itzhoe. And a a court spokesperson, uh, Frederick Mehofer, actually told this story here. And so she was picked up several hours later after she tried to get out of town, and the court issued an arrest warrant. So uh, 96 years old, I, you know, but Hey, there's never too late to bring justice, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I know Devin. That's a really interesting story there. I, um, I, I would imagine that, you know, like you said, it's, it's never too late. So she's, I guess she's, she's got her day in court for sure. Uh, but to kind of bring us back home, uh, talk about the pandemic a little bit. In a potential leap forward in the global fight against a pandemic, a drug maker marks at Friday that its experimental pill for people sick with COVID-19 reduced hospitalizations and deaths by half. If cleared by regulators, it would be the first pill shown to treat COVID, adding a whole new easy-to-use weapon to arsenal, a weapon that an arsenal that already needs, that already includes a vaccine. The company said it will soon ask health officials in the U.S. and around the world to authorize the pill's use. A decision from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration could come within weeks after that. And the drug, if it gets the okay, could be distributed quickly soon afterward. Um, that's really nice. Um, I think that with, with us being two years into the pandemic, Anything that we can add to the arsenal uh, for for tools against COVID, we need to keep them coming, Devin. Yeah, we do. You know, maybe if folks don't want to take the injection, they can take the pill. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you, you got choices now. 
Uh, but you know, we'll we'll move from the COVID nineteen pill. We'll go down to Alabama, uh, where this was just an interesting story about what's happening with some of the COVID money that was actually sent out to states. And so Alabama is weighing the use of four hundred million dollars in pandemic relief funds to build new prisons. And this is a proposal that this that state Republican leaders say would save state taxpayers money. But critics, of course, are arguing that this is not the intended use of the federal aid. And so just to give you kind of two sides to this story, Republican Senator Greg uh, Albritton, who chairs the Senate General Fund Budget Committee, said legislative leaders are comfortable. They can legally use the money for prison construction. Albritton said part of the federal dollars are to replace revenue lost during the pandemic. And he said that pot of funds, quote, has many fewer restrictions on how it is used. And so on the other side of the art, the discussion is uh, Dev Wakely, who is a policy analyst with Alabama Arise. He said, while the state may be able to legally use the money for prison construction, the purpose was to do things that, quote, will help everyday Alabamians in their lives and to smooth out the recovery. And so Alabama Arise is an, av- an advocacy organization for low-income families. Uh, Wakely also said that the money could be used for, among other things, such as the expansion of the state's Medicaid program to provide medical coverage to previously unsure Alabamians and child care programs, or even education. There are a lot of other uses, Adrian, that they could be using this money for. And I'm just, you know, just challenged to see, like, the you landed on prisons. Like you could have went a lot of different ways with using $400 million and prisons was on top of the list. I just find it hard to believe that that's a pressing issue right now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I guess it depends on what you deem as the issue is the issue that, you know, you're trying to round people up or trying to detain people. I, I don't, I don't understand either with, with so much going on right now, on the on the state level in Alabama, um, there's so many. <laughs> you named it. I mean, there's so many other things that they could be doing with that money right now. But prisons, it just shows you where priorities lie within that you know that state party and that governorship. Um, it, it's sad that 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 there's so many of their constituents who are hurting, but because those constituents aren't you know their skin tone or their, those constituents aren't people that generally vote for them. Um, they would rather, you know, do something that's going to just further harm and traumatize, um, you know, minority communities. So um, not surprised. It's the South. Um, we've got a lot of recovery to do. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, I get it. It's just, you know, for a state, like you say, that has so many problems, even with COVID, they still have problems. Like the state was running out of beds, what, a month ago? Like we talked about it on the show. They had like a negative amount of ICU beds available. Like you could be putting money towards that or paying your first line where, you know, your first responders more, paying your nurses more who are battling the pandemic. Uh, I just, you know, it's just kind of ridiculous. And the money was not used for that. And I feel like this may be part of a bigger trend, too. I don't think, you know, we doled out a lot of money with three stimulus bills. And I don't know if anyone's going to go back and actually look around and say, hey, where did that money actually go? Um, because we already know we had a problem with 
that, you know, we, we talked about it maybe a month ago about the renters not getting the money that they needed to stay in their apartments and pay their rent because it was just the money was just kind of hanging out. It was getting caught up in bureaucratic, you know, processes and it wasn't getting to people. But, you know, it's just part of it, I think, will be, end up being a bigger problem down the road. We're going to turn around and be like, hey, you know, that money we sent out to Alabama or Mississippi or Georgia, that money actually didn't reach the people it was intended to reach. And it's just this is part of the reason why people feel as though politicians don't listen. They don't, they're not doing the work for us. So um, typical. But like you say, that's <laughs> absolutely. I mean, that's 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 what we're that's what we're fighting against. Um, consistently fighting against people who don't understand the the problems. Uh, they tend to just ignore and sweep them under the rug. And speaking of sweeping things under the rug, uh, there's a new study that was based on research conducted at the University of Washington School of Medicine's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. Man, it's a mouthful. Found that between 1980 and 2019, there were high percentages of police violence that were either misclassified or underreported, or excuse me, unreported. It equates that there's about 17,000 deaths, or more than 17,000 deaths, rather, that were part of these high percentages. The study was published in the Lancet, a peer-reviewed medical journal that also discovered Black Americans were more likely to die from police violence than any other ethnic group. The study of 1980 to 2019 is one of the longest to date by research police violence in the United States. The methodology used included comparing data from the U.S. National Vital Statistics System and open source material like news reports and public record requests. The research found that the NVSS misclassified nearly 60% of all fatal police encounters involving blacks and approximately 50% of those involving Hispanic people. 50% of the deaths of white people were also misclassified. Uh, Just goes to show you, um, listeners, it's not always a a racial issue when it comes to police, but um, definitely high numbers when it comes to people of color there. Uh, Really great story to shed some light on to why we need Congress to not be stalling and collapsing on police reform. Because, you know, we got people who are just sweeping it on the rug, misclassifying it and unreporting it. Yeah, just more, you know, more failures of the system, uh, not working and classifying things correctly. Uh, but we'll move on. We'll, of course, keep you updated. Hopefully the the policing reform talks will, you know, start back up again at some point. Um, and we'll bring you that story when it happens. But our, our next story here is an interesting one, uh, especially coming off the election we had last year. Um, where some people said it was rigged, other people said it was the safest ever. But there is someone out there who's actually trying to continue to push for Internet voting. And so uh, by 2028, Bradley Tusk wants every American to be able to vote on their phones. And his nonprofit, Tusk Philanthropies, announced a $10 million grant program Thursday to fund the development of a new Internet-based voting system that he says will aim to win over security skeptics who have long been weary of votes being cast via digital networks rather than through paper ballots or ATM-style machines that most Americans currently use. And so uh, Tusk was Uber's first political advisor, and he is also a former staffer for Senator Chuck Schumer of New York and former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg. And he has 
already bankrolled a number of small-scale mobile phone voting pilot projects across the U.S. over the past few years in which voters with disabilities and Americans living abroad from from a select few districts have been able to return their ballots digitally. And so after a review process involving roughly 25 applications, his organization settled on Assembly Voting, which is an elections technology company based in Denmark, and the OSET Institute, which is a U.S. nonprofit dedicated to election technology and research. And so uh, OSET, or I think I said it wrong, OSET will design the public-facing ballot marking application and assembly will design the technology that will actually transmit the electronic ballot from a person's phone or device to an election official. And so this is interesting. Uh, like you say, if we could ever get this process down to where it's safe and secure, uh, Adrian, I think this would be the cure, the way that we could get our you know participation rate to be, you know, not 100 percent, but you could certainly maybe get 70, 80 percent of eligible voters to actually participate in the voting process if they could do it on their phones. People say this every year, every election cycle, but I could just, you could just hear the chants already starting on the, on the Republican side saying, this is going to be rigged. It's going to be rigged in favor of Democrats. It's going to be something wrong. It's going to be hacked. It seems like a pipe dream, but maybe if it's proven to be secure, it could work. Absolutely. I think it could work. Um, To me, there's no reason why in 2021, with us being such a superpower that we are, we can't have the capabilities for people to use their cell phones to vote. I mean, we can you can, you know, do a a screening with your doctor, you know, sitting in your home. Um, You can, you know, have a board meeting with, you know, CEOs and, you know, you can, you can do all these things remote, um, but you can't vote because security. I mean, there's, I, I have to take exams uh, on my computer where they have respondents where you lock down the, you know, the computer, you can't go anything. You, you have to show people your ID, you know, to verify who you are. You can upload a picture before. I mean, there are a million ways that we can authenticate people to make sure that whoever is going to be voting. I mean, you use your phone. There's, you know, there's a camera. You can do facial recognition. You can do a, a, a thumbprint. I mean, that's unique to everybody. Um, there's a lot of ways we can make sure that people who are supposed to be voting are voting. Um, so I hope that we can see uh, Mr. Tusk here um, succeed. That would be really, really great. Um, another thing that we'd like to see, uh, Issa Rae has joined forces with American Express and U.S. Black Commerce, uh, excuse me, U.S. Black Chambers to promote buy, uh, buy Black, the first national certification program for black business owners. To start the free certification process, businesses must show proof of identification as well as proof their company is 51% black owned and controlled by a black business owner. The online application takes about 30 minutes to complete and will take about 30 days to process and certify. Then the, the new business will be able to create a profile for the business on the Buy Black directory. Directory helps Black-owned businesses connect, collaborate with others in the community, raise their visibility, and enhance revenue prospects. So a uh, really, really great partnership that we see here. Hats off to them. Much success. 
But listeners, what we're going to do, we're going to wrap up this segment here. When we come back, we got plenty of quick hits, actually some funny stuff uh, this week. Sometimes it's not as funny, but this week we got some good stuff for you. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Could you come talk to me, company? I need to smile. It's my tonic, I need company. Would you like to contribute to a scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, go to patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda Pod. Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So we're going to get into our quick hits. And like Adrian said before the break, we actually have some very funny stuff. We try to do this every week, but this week is especially good. Um, And so our very first quick hit here is going to be about a Florida man who captured an alligator with a trash can. And this came from a viral video. You probably saw it somewhere on Facebook or Twitter. I saw it on Twitter. But a Florida man has gone viral after a video was shared on social media of him capturing an alligator in a trash can. And so his name is Eugene uh, Bozy, and he's a Philadelphia native who has been living in Orange County, Florida for a year. Uh, but the man is actually a military veteran and a devoted father of seven daughters. Uh, so when an alligator inched into his yard, he took things into his own hands using his trash can to catch it. And he said, quote, somebody's got to step up and do something. We all got to look out for each other. Right. And he told this to WESH number uh, channel two. And he said, quote, I, quote, I was frightened when I had it in it because it was so powerful and I didn't expect that it was pushing out, whipping its tail around. And so he says once he actually caught the gator in the trash can, he uh, he said and the station show that he pushed the can down an embankment near a retention pond by his home. He pushed it over and just ran and let the alligator out. So uh, the, the video is hilarious and it's pretty crazy that he actually did back it up using the trash can on the ground. It's pretty smart, I guess. It's the best thing you could do. Um, and so it's a viral video. Go check it out. You can probably find it on YouTube. But a Florida man captured an alligator in a trash can and released it back into the pond um, safely without killing it. Nobody got hurt. So I guess that military training came into uh, <laughs> came in handy. Uh, yeah, that's a funny story there. Uh, I feel like Florida's always got some gators down there. So ha- good, good for that guy for getting some spotlight for it. This story here, listeners, is is is. I guess it's not. It's it's funny, but you know you shouldn't do things like this because it's you know it's wrong. Uh, since last December, a Douglasville. Uh, a Douglasville, Georgia neighborhood has been gripped with fear due to racially charged messages that have been anonymously left in mailboxes of residents of color. And this is according to Fox News. Now officials are saying that they have arrested the alleged culprit and it's somebody that you wouldn't expect. Um, Wednesday, the Douglasville Police Department confirmed that they had filed criminal charges against Teresha Lucas. Uh, Lucas is a 30 year old black woman who is believed to have been threatening people in her community while posing as a Ku Klux Klan member. In the notes, threats were made to burn down homes and kill the occupants. The author of these disturbing messages also made it a point to describe themselves as a six-foot-tall white man with a long red beard who did not live in the neighborhood. Lucas was charged with eight counts of making terrorist threats and is expected to turn herself into jail this week. The motives for her actions remain a mystery. 
like I said, it's it's funny because um, she didn't like carry anything out, so it's good, but it's crazy. Teresa, we're gonna have to have a talk. What you- <laughs> <laughs> Teresa, what are you doing? I want to, I want to hear that motive. We're gonna have to make sure we. Keep know. Up. Somebody must not have like come over to her house for like a, a potluck or something. I don't know. Something. Somebody <laughs> pissed her off. Somebody doesn't pick up their dog poop, maybe. <laughs> oh my goodness, it's terrible, Teresa. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll definitely keep you updated on that that story. Uh, but our next story here is kind of you know it's about football, but also about the Super Bowl halftime show, which is why most people watch. Um, but it looks like this year's upcoming Super Bowl show halftime show is actually going to be one of the best that they've had in a long time. If you've watched them over the years, you know they have progressively gotten worse. But this time in Los Angeles uh, during the Super Bowl for next year. I don't know my Roman numerals, so I cannot say it. But for Super Bowl, for this year, it's going to be the lineup includes Snoop Dogg, Eminem, Dr. Dre, Mary J. Blige, and Kendrick Lamar. They're all going to be on the stage at SoFi Stadium in Inglewood, California on February 13th, 2022. And the Super Bowl will be airing on NBC next year. So this ensemble here marks the first time these five multi-award winning artists will put their dynamic talents on display together. Los Angeles offers a homecoming for Dr. Dre, Snoop, and Lamar, Kendrick Lamar. Uh, Dre and Lamar are from Compton, and Snoop was born, whose, whose real name is Calvin Cordozar Brodish Jr., is from Long Beach, uh, California. And so this is the first time in almost 30 years that the Super Bowl will be held in Los Angeles. And just to let you know how star-sided this really is, the artists that are going to be on stage have been awarded collectively 43 Grammys throughout their careers and received 22 number one albums on the Billboard 200. So impressive indeed. I mean, you got Snoop Dogg, Eminem, Dr. Dre, Mary J. Blige, and Kendrick Lamar. I mean, those are huge names and a huge get for the NFL who's been struggling to put on good shows for halftime. So I'm glad to see that they're at least temporarily fix that part. <laughs> Should be a good show. Yeah. I was like with that, you know, we were, you know, listeners, we were looking uh, at a break, looking at tickets for the um, Super Bowl. Oh, and man. I wish we could, um, could get some tickets there. You know, the cheapest ones are seven grand. So um, <laughs> maybe, maybe they're, maybe that's why they're, they're doing it. They have to pay all these, well, actually you don't get paid to perform. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know that they need to do like some sort of benefit to help, help people out maybe that's what we need to do Devin. That's, we'll get black people to band together so we can all go to super bowl that'll be the first step we can get some unity around that i bet you i bet you get some traction with that band together get black re, black representation at the super bowl that's exactly. yeah <laughs> hey with the, with as much money as everybody on stage has that are less black they could definitely they could definitely do it you know snoop or Mary J. Blige, or Kendrick Jamar, or Dr. Dre alone. I mean, they don't need the collective help, but uh, somebody maybe need to tweet at them and see what they can get going with that. Um, another international story, this is out of Turkey. Uh, a Turkish man reportedly missing after a night of drinking in the woods was found after he actually joined his own search party. Uh, the guy is 50 years old. Uh, he was working on a construction site and was drinking with some friends. He woke up around about 2 a.m. and he went uh, home to sleep in a friend's villa 
and his friends thought that he had wandered off into the woods and called the police and reported him missing. The construction worker woke up the next morning and he encountered a search party. And whenever they yelled out his name, he was like, oh, that's me. And, you know, just kind of discovered that he was in his own search party. So uh, interesting story out of Turkey there. <laughs> that's pretty funny. That's that's going to be a movie soon. Watch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, our next story may not be as funny as that one, but it's just a, a crazy mix up here. But. Uh, two sisters, two sisters from North Carolina said they made a startling, startling discovery earlier this month when they found a, stra- a stranger's body inside the casket that was supposed to contain their mother. And so they say there's no similarity in the person. Uh, the, the One of the sisters' name is Janetta Archer, and she said in an interview their size was way off when the first person had the clothing on. She was swimming in the clothes because she was so small compared to my mother. And the sisters claimed that Hunter's funeral home in a, a Hosky, which is about 120 miles northeast of Raleigh, uh, North Carolina, failed to acknowledge the issue and even deny that the person was someone else. So their mom's body was eventually located in the embalming room. The funeral home did not immediately respond to an after hours interview from Fox News and the home claimed that it reached out to the family to apologize, but the sisters said they never received the call. Uh, so pretty ridiculous if that's how they're going to act. I mean, it's their mix-up, and then you act like you didn't make the mistake, and then you didn't apologize for it. Um, just terrible service there. I, I hate that for them. Yeah, I used to uh, date someone in the funeral home business, and that – Generally, it doesn't happen very often unless you've got some negligence. Mm-hmm. But that's it's a traumatic thing, you know, um, for for that to happen for a family because it's obviously you know enough to go through you know burying someone that you love. But when you get ready to open the casket and it's not the person it's supposed to be, uh, that's a whole another element to it. Um, this here, listeners, just to kind of round off our our quick hits, it's a it's a funny one. And honestly, I don't blame the person for doing it because I've thought about <laughs> doing something similar or trying this just because it, it seems like it would work. Um, authorities in Texas said a driver using the high occupancy vehicle lane, which just means the lane that you got to have two or more, sometimes three or more people to be in it, was ticketed when deputies noticed that the only passenger was a Halloween skeleton. <laughs> the Harris County uh, PC, uh, the Harris County Precinct Five Constables Office said in a Facebook post that a driver was pulled over by deputies who noticed the driver was the only human being in the vehicle while it was using the HOV lanes. The passenger seat of the vehicles was occupied by a skeleton Halloween decoration wearing a hat. Um, like I said, I've thought about doing something like that, Devin. Uh, just because, you know, the, the HOV lanes, you, you zip through. I mean, traffic yeah. is bad in L.A. a lot of times, but those HOV lanes, you just, you get, you go. And a lot of times I'm driving by myself. So, you know, I, I thought about, I thought about like getting a pillow or like just trying to stage something up to look like another person. But this, this, whoever this was, they were smart. They just got a skeleton. You can't do that during the day, though. You can't drive with a skeleton in the car during the day. I mean, it's... <laughs> No. Come on. And then if you're going to do that, you, you got to at least put some clothes on it. Like if they see the white 
bones of the skeleton, they're going to know, like, hey, something's off here. Uh, I would have, like, dressed it up, you know, maybe put some glasses on it. He had a hat on it, you know, put some headphones on it. I don't know. Make it look like a real person. Um, it, hey, he tried it, though. He, it is Halloween month, so you might be able to get away with that. We don't advise you doing this and that, you know, to try to trick people in the HOV lane. So don't send us a ticket if you get one. <laughs> That's right. We're not endorsing uh, you to break the law here, but just saying that I have thought about something like that, but don't do it, obviously. Right. It's you will be ticketed. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but that's gonna that's gonna do it. So that's gonna do it for our quick hit. Some interesting ones, some good ones, some funny ones. Um, but we always try to make we make sure we give you a variety um, with the quick hits. And so we're gonna take our very last break. And when we come back, we're gonna give you some you know some some upcoming episode information. The next week around up and a new charity for this month. It's a new month, and that means a new charity of the month. So make sure you tune in for that. So stick with us and we'll be right back. Every time I go to you have been listening to the Black Agenda podcast hosted by Adrian Guess and Devin Dito. If you enjoy listening to the show, let the host know by leaving a review on Apple Podcast or by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda Pod and give a few dollars. After all, the Black Agenda podcast is supported by listeners like you. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So as always, we like to leave you with giving you a look forward as to what is upcoming on the podcast. And so uh, first up after today on Tuesday, we'll have another episode coming out. This time we're talking about Religion and Social Justice. This is a great, great conversation. And so our guest for this episode is going to be Dr. Joel Hunter. And so Dr. Hunter has has previously served as senior pastor of Northland Church in Longwood, Florida. He, He was there for 32 years. And he has now since moved on to be the president of Parable Foundation and chairman of the Community Resource Network. And so Uh, Dr. Hunter was also the spiritual advisor to former President Barack Obama. And so we had a fantastic conversation with him about religion and social justice and the mixing of religion and politics and how that has, you know, really played a factor in some of the turmoil and, and, you know, the, the poisoning of our political debates. Part of this has a religious aspect to it. And so we talk about that with Dr. Hunter so make sure you tune in for that. It's going to be a great episode. That's coming out on this upcoming Tuesday. And then, of course, next Saturday, October 9th, that'll be weekly roundup number 17. Weekly roundup number 17. We're already in there halfway through the season. Uh, again, we'll be back with you. More news that Saturday, October 9th. Uh, more breaking news. So make sure you tune in for that to get your news fix. And before you go, like I say, we have a new charity of the month. And so Adrian's going to let you know who it is and how you can give to them. And absolutely. <laughs> but before I do that, I'm going to let you know about giving us just so you can give some of your dollars to us and then you can go to this other organization. But the thing that we always like to say is when you give to us, it lets us know that you like what we do. It also lets us know you believe in what we do and you want to see us do even more. Uh, living in a capitalistic society, it definitely takes money to make good ideas happen. So we really need your help. Go to our website, blackagendapod.com. Click on the donate tab. 
If you're listening to us through the Podbean app, you also can do it directly through the Podbean app. Just click on the donate button from there. Once you get ready to donate, you'll notice that there are different levels you can do from a dollar all the way up. And as you donate more, you get more things from us like shout outs, thank yous. You can even be on our show. So we'd love to have you become a monthly patron. Again, go to our website, blackagendapod.com, click the donate button and start giving. The other thing we like to do is make sure to recognize our charity of the month. And as Devin said, it's a new month, new charity. This time we're going to be recognizing Race Forward. Race Forward conducts original and broadly accessible research on pressing racial justice issues. Their research is focused on the ways institutional and structural racism leads to inequitable social and economic op- economic outcomes. Race Forward catalyzes movements building for racial justice in partnership with communities, organizations, and sectors. They build strategies to advance racial justice in our policies, institutions, and culture. Race Four imagines a just, multiracial, democratic society free from oppression and exploitation in which people of color thrive with power and purpose. That's a really, really great organization, listeners. Please check them out. Again, their name is Race Forward. Go to their website. Consider giving to them. Go to our website. Give to us, and we can make the world a better place together. That's right. We're trying to make the world a better place, one podcast episode at a time (laughs) here at the Black Agenda. So. Uh, before we go, we also like to let you know that you can follow us on social media. You should already be doing that. You're listening to the podcast. But if you're not, you can go ahead and pull your phone out. Go to Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Type in at Black Agenda Pod. That is our handle. And you can follow us, like us, and share everything that you see that's coming out. We try to make sure it's interesting. We tell you about what's coming up on the shows and who the guest is and what they're talking about. So make sure you follow us. Um, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Black Agenda Pod is our handle. You can also find us on YouTube. So just go to YouTube, type in the Black Agenda Podcast. You'll find a very large catalog of videos and interviews and conversations about all kind of different uh, topics from mandatory voting to Black history, HBCUs, and even critical race theory Uh, You name it, we've probably talked about it at some point. If not, you need to send us a message and let us know (laughs) what we need to be talking about here on the show. So make sure you do that. YouTube, Black Agenda Podcast, and then Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Black Agenda Pod. And so, uh, again, for me and Adrian, we appreciate you listening and staying with us. And we're going to catch you next Saturday for weekly roundup number 17. So until then, we'll catch you next time. 